before the start of our podcast, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Samantha Sanft. I am the new Assistant Director of SIAMS for the Spring 2019 semester, and I will be your Radio SIAMS host for the next few episodes. And now, stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. This is Radio SIAMS, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission? To probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On February 20th, 2019, archaeologist Dr. Allison Wiley from the University of British Columbia met a panel of SIAMS students and faculty to discuss collaborative practice in archaeology. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. Hi everyone, I'm Dana Bartle, the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate in the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. We are gathered here today for a podcast discussion on February 20th, 2019. Our guest is Allison Wiley, who is a Professor of Philosophy and Canada Research Chair at the University of British Columbia. Professor Wiley is a feminist philosopher of social and historical sciences whose primary interests center around understanding how we know what we think we know under non-ideal circumstances and issues of accountability that arise in research practice, including in the practice of archaeology. She works on questions of evidential reasoning, objectivity, and accountability, and has published extensively on feminist standpoint theory and on normative issues raised by an ethic of stewardship and collaborative practice in archaeology. Within this vein, Professor Wiley recently joined a UBC-funded research cluster led by Dr. Andrew Martindale on indigenous science, partnerships in the exploration of history and environments. Our discussion today will focus on two of her recent publications. The first is a chapter from a 2015 volume, Objectivity in Science, New Perspectives from Science and Technology Studies, edited by Flavia Padovani, Alan Richardson, and Jonathan Sue titled A Plurality of Pluralisms, Collaborative Practice in Archaeology. The second is the concluding chapter from Professor Wiley's 2016 co-authored monograph, Evidential Reasoning in Archaeology, written with her colleague Bob Chapman, Conclusions, Archaeology Made Concrete. We are going to be asking Professor Wiley some questions related to her work represented broadly across these two articles. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. So I'll start us off with a very basic question. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your unique background as a philosopher of social and historical science and how archaeology became a central focus of your inquiry, including collaborative archaeology with indigenous and First Nations communities? I can do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, let me see. I was on archaeological sites as a, as a kid. Uh, my father was a colleague of Jim Pendergast, who you may know as an avocational archaeologist who did a lot of work along the St. Lawrence River Valley. Um, they would uh, get their holidays lined up at the same time every summer, and the National Museum would direct, I, I think primarily Jim Pendergast, to explore document sites they were interested in knowing more about. So I was on digs as a as a kid, as a like a nine year old and a ten year old, which I thought was pretty terrible at the time. <laughs> Everybody else got to go to summer camp and learn useful things like how to make a fire, and I had to hold a stadia rod and dig holes in the ground. But that yeah, so that that was you know at the time I didn't appreciate it, but I I did spend a number of you know sort of summer field seasons. Um, and then as an undergrad, I, when I needed, I wanted to get a summer job after my first year in college. So 
so that would be 73, summer of 73, Parks Canada um, was developing uh, a series of excavations of national historic uh, sites across the country and recruiting um, uh, field assistants. And so I applied and got one of those positions and ended up working at Fort Walsh uh, for five seasons. Um, and at the same time, while I was uh, as an undergraduate in this small liberal arts college in New Brunswick, Mount, Mount A, um, my main philosophy teacher, I pretty quickly discovered I really loved doing philosophy, and my main philosophy teacher was a philosopher of science who had done substantial training as a chemist originally. Um, so the way he taught his philosophy of science in the year after I came out of my first year working for Parks Canada um, was to recommend that all the students in the class write their papers and read and take notes and come to class um, thinking about a particular science, one that interested them, that they had some background in. So for me, it was obvious, an obvious connection with archaeology. Archaeology at the time was, of course, um, going through great dramatic, you know, new archaeology uh, debates. And the, um, the site supervisor at Fort Walsh, Jim Cizenti, had been trained at the University of Arizona. So he had us all reading new archaeology before we went into the field. And, I, and then, you know, there were references uh, to Hempel and Hansen and Kuhn, who I read when I started that course in, the, in my uh, sophomore year in philosophy of science. So that's how it came together. I was really thinking about archaeology and continued to do field work pretty much every summer through most of grad school, undergrad and grad school, uh, at the same time as I was studying uh, philosophy of science. And as it happens, um, uh, just down the road from here, SUNY at Binghamton, I guess it's now Binghamton University, right? they had a program in philosophy at the time uh, called um, History and Philosophy of Social and Behavioral Sciences, which required students to come in with an MA in the social science they were going to study. I think I was the only one that was admitted without an MA, but they... In that case, I was required to do effectively uh, MA coursework. And at the time, uh, Meg Conkey, John Fritz, Chuck Redman were all there, and I took courses with them and did a master's degree with them. So it really um, configured both the philosophy, my philosophy interests and archaeology field experience really configured each other. And that's you know, how I got into this funny little corner of philosophy, <laughs> this intersection. Yeah. Wonderful. So let's uh, kick it off with some discussion of some of your recent publications. Hi, this is Jessica Plant. I'm a PhD student in the History of Art and Archaeology department here, and I work on late antique archaeology in the Mediterranean and in Turkey specifically. Um, so I want to start off by thanking you for a really fantastic talk yesterday and for sharing these um, stimulating two pieces of work. Um, we all really enjoyed them. Um, my first question, I hope, sort of will bridge both your talk yesterday and the, the work that you shared. And I wanted to sort of follow up on this idea of acknowledgement that came up in the, in the talk yesterday um, in regards to this new indigenous science project that you are a part of. Um, and especially when you introduced these sort of three guiding principles, would you call them? Three guiding um, ways to direct the project that have to do with, first of all, um, interactional expertise, clear action when you're working with a collaborative community project, 
and bearing witness to what takes place. And so in this discussion, you brought out this idea that there are really different forms of acknowledgement that take place in a project like this. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on some of these different forms of acknowledgement, sort of what takes place beyond the academy when you're collaborating with communities. Um, and especially, I guess I'm interested in, in your position as someone who is maybe more used to analyzing after the fact, doing the sort of philosophy of what takes place in a research project, but thinking about how you um, acknowledge different forms of expertise and collaboration on the ground in project design, and carrying out the project, and sort of if there's, I don't know, refract in different ways for you. Mm, those are hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're big, those are big questions. Um, yeah, I, well, one, uh, um, the point about acknowledgement that I made in the talk yesterday, I really had in mind um, something that Kyle White said. Um, he's a, a Potawatomi indigenous uh, philosopher at Michigan State who works in environmental ethics and climate change and sovereignty issues and so on. He does a tremendous amount of collaborative work. Um, and he, in this uh, talk that he gave at, at UBC a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, it's one, it's fair enough you should acknowledge um, uh, uh, partners, community partners that you're collaborating with. And that's something that's come through really strongly in the meetings that we've had with indigenous communities about the indigenous science project. You should acknowledge in publication, uh, one of the elders at a workshop we ran said, uh, not just generally acknowledging, you know, we worked with and great are grateful to, you know, whoever the community is, but you should very specifically acknowledge the individuals you work with. And in the Northwest, I imagine in other contexts as well, there's an expectation that you should be compensating those you work with for the time that they uh, commit. Um, so you're recognizing their intellectual labor, you're recognizing them ideally depending on their involvement as uh, co-authors um, or community co-PIs, you know, co um, but it may vary what's appropriate. Um, but you're also uh, compensating them because they're not typically holding a grant or employed in a university that expects you to be doing research or whatever the context is for the, the non-indigenous researcher. But there was something that um, Kyle said that really struck me. And he said, you know, it's fair enough to um, really do that well, uh, have community partners as co-authors and co-PIs, but you should recognize that, you know, publishing a paper with an indigenous community partner as an academic may significantly, you know, not significantly, it's going to contribute to your career path and visibility for doing this work and your credibility. It's not necessarily going to do a thing for them. I mean, in fact, it might be a liability, depending on how the article is cited and what it, how it's interpreted, how it circulates. So it's really, I think there's not an answer. I think the main point I came away with was that you, in the course of, developing and working within these partnerships, you have to be continually asking what would be meaningful and useful? Um, what what kind of compensation, what kind of recognition would be appropriate? Um, and that, you know, that came through the variability, a diversity of ways acknowledgement can be appropriate really came through and, and compensation uh, in the, the workshop that I mentioned that we had last October. 
In some cases, community partners would want to be anonymous. They don't, they would not want to be identified. Or they'd want to be identified as one of a collective if they're representing um, a family's specialist knowledge or um, uh, a, a tribal um, committee of working group. So I, that's not a very satisfying answer, but it's, it's pretty much, uh, I think, all I can say. And the point of mentioning Kyle's um, response is that it really made me realize I hadn't really thought through what he was saying. Uh, and it really made me realize you have to see it from perspectives other than I'm, I'm giving something that would matter to me. Right. Uh, so the do unto others as you would like to have, you know, that might not be a good guide <laughs> in these cases. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Liam Murphy. I'm a second year PhD student in anthropology. I'm interested in Tuscarora archaeology and Haudenosaunee archaeology generally, as well as uh, hopefully engaging on a collaborative project for my dissertation work. Um, which kind of leads me to, I guess, a bit of a follow-up question to Dana's question last night at the talk, um, which had to do with this um, kind of the institutional kind of pressures that kind of uh, graduate students and younger scholars kind of have against kind of these sustained relationships with collaborative partners um, in terms of the amount of time it forms to it takes to form a meaningful collaborative relationship and these kind of harsh deadlines that institutions set, um, in what ways can somebody who can't guarantee, you know, a decades-long relationship with a community um, formulate that relationship in a uh, productive, respectful, and honest way, I guess? Well, I, I almost want to turn the question back to you. How are you navigating that? Um, I'm... I mean, I'm I'm very early on in kind of forming these, and I'm yeah. I'm trying to be as honest as possible about kind of yeah. what goals are attainable, um, but it can be a little daunting, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there again, there's not probably going to be an answer, but um, but I think the uh, being clear, one of the elders that we spoke with that or that was at this workshop um, made a point several times of saying, be clear about who you are and what it is you want to do. Uh, but realize that that's probably going to change, uh, you know, that your understanding of who you are and what it is you want to do is, is going to change in the course of being involved in these collaborations. So the first step, I think, is the one you're describing, to just be really straightforward. Mm -hmm about what you can offer. Don't over-offer, don't, you know, over-commit. Um, but I think, uh, again, this was wisdom that came out uh, in the discussion we had with Kyle White. And I should have mentioned, uh, there's a video uh, of, that, uh, of that session, the Indigenous Science session with Kyle White, that will be shortly online on the Indigenous Science website. Um, and it's really worth seeing because the questions he got from the audience were exactly the ones you're raising and he has tremendously deep experience uh, not so much not with archaeology particularly but more with environmental ecological research collaborations uh, with indigenous a wide range of indigenous communities and in this region like uh, around the Great Lakes well not exactly this region but um, so one of the things he said really struck me was think in terms of a longer, you know, what, what your longer term goals are, but then be really real. It's, it's not like you have to say, well, 
I can only do something for two years, so don't count on me for anything beyond that. You could be thinking and honestly reporting what you understand your long-term goals to be, open-ended as they are, but then uh, realistically uh, identify chunks that you could pull out, that you could do. And another recommendation was think in terms of different scenarios. Um, what, you know, So you'd really like to do thus and such a thing with your community partners. That may or may not be feasible. Uh, it might turn out that it, you, know, you don't get permission to do it or it falls through partway. So always have in mind a couple of scenarios that you, you could um, not necessarily fall back on, but alternatives. So that's, that's the kind of pragmatic advice that, that I've been hearing. And then, of course, um, it uh, it's always makes sense to be working um, as you're forming a project early career with somebody who has these long-term relationships, um, who, who is introducing you, who is, um, you know, who you're, you can be helping with and, and engaging with and doing parts of projects that are already underway. Does that sound sensible? It's pretty prosaic. I mean, there's not much philosophical insight in this. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that makes sense. I, I guess the thing that I would kind of, I guess, follow up on is this idea of um, of finding um, somebody who's already kind of engaged in this kind of project. It seems like that's not always possible, I guess. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I guess these questions are so contingent on specific um, situations that it's hard to give kind of Hard to kind of think of a universal kind of answer to anything like this. There's a there's a an op-ed piece by David Brooks in the New York Times like a couple days ago, maybe yesterday, that's about weaving reweaving the social fabric, and he, this is something he's been really on about for for a while now. That as he understands it, the underlying problems or the, the the problem that underlies all kinds of issues in in the U.S. now is that the social fabric is, is just... There, there aren't robust, sustaining social relationships for many people. Um, and so he, he talks about, you know, he's on a mission to encourage people, he calls them, you know, to follow the example of weavers, people who find ways to engage one-on-one um, -on -one in small groups and small, you know. Um, and, and, the, and these weavers, he, he, there's a lot of prosaic and smart advice there, like show up and keep showing up. See if there are things that you could do that you could be engaged in with a community whose archaeological heritage you're interested in. But are there are there things that they would value that would be an opportunity for you to to just be there to um, you know do some of this weaving of relationships in that context? Mindful of the fact that when Speaking as a non-indigenous settler scholar, when we, as a member of a group, when we show up to meet with chief and council or elders at one of the communities that we're now working with, we're taking their time. They have a lot of things they're dealing with. And so it's, you know, showing up and I'd like to help. That can be a burden, right? You may need to be prepared to, like, go away. But if you try to think about what would make a difference what would be helpful, what kind of weaving of connection would be feasible from the point of view of the community you'd like to work with. That might be a way to approach it. And it's often not going to be archaeology to start with. Yeah. 
Hello, um, I'm Anna Paola Passerini. I'm a second year PhD student in archaeology in the Department of Anthropology, and I work on um, the application of scientific dating, specifically radiocarbon, and the use of, or the use of uh, Bayesian modeling to address issues of social cultural change in the Bronze Age subcaucasus. Your talk provided us with a beautiful explanation uh, of what you call as reflexivity made concrete, as also um, explained in uh, evidential reasoning. This turn to a pragmatic and collaborative epistemological practice entails, as you describe, an iterative and dynamic knowing process. However, uh, especially as graduate students, we often need to cope with the fact that established written traditions of archaeological narrative, um, especially academic, stem to um, classical account of objectivity. Also in response to the demands and requirements of scientific literature and the academic market. However, my question is, how can we integrate reflexive epistemology not only as we do, but also as we narrate archaeology? Ah, do you have a particular example in mind? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I guess um, I guess uh, I could like draw an example, for example, from my like specific subfield. I what I'm seeking to look, uh, what I'm seeking to. To do with my work in uh, chronological uh, in, in in the chronological field is to, for example, integrate different temporalities, also as extractive, mm -hmm. obviously from the deep past. Um, but obviously that poses challenges in terms of um, possible representation. Yeah. So how deeply would you have to reconfigure? Um, would it be like reporting standards or uh, for example, narratives? Yes. Yeah to recognize different temporalities. Would that require really fundamental shifts in how how the data are gathered and, and characterized? I think it depends on what uh, kind of audience uh, of readers I'm, I'm targeting to, because uh, yeah. there's like it, it comes down to uh, uh, where are we writing uh, our archaeology and to like for whom we're writing it. Yeah, that, I think, well, I think that's the crucial point, is to be mindful of your audience and decide which audiences you want to reach. Um, even with the same body of data and the same results, um, there, you may be able to and may want to present them in different ways, depending, you know, if they're a very technical report in one context, a more interpretive report in another a more accessible narrative for a broader public audience in a third. So cultivating different ways of writing, I think, is, is crucial. And that requires a degree of mindfulness about what the conventions of different kinds of writing are. So there you're doing reflexive work already. Right? Um, but uh, yeah, you also, in asking that question, you were also signaling the fact that you're apt to confront some degree of resistance Yes. If you're really kind of breaking open the, the conventions. Um, and there certainly are places, there are certainly places in archaeology, conferences and publications, where you can publish that kind of work. The, you know, we need to completely rethink the typology or the, you know, the, um, the, the language in which we're describing cultural periods and cultural, you know, types, as it were. Uh, it, it, it's not that there aren't venues in archaeology, like TAG and RATS, um, World Archaeology, uh, where you could present and publish that kind of stepping back 
uh, critical take, critical scrutiny of the, the framing assumptions. Um, you probably wouldn't get such an article into like carbon 14, right? <laughs> But that, you know, that's not, and that might be the audience you ultimately want to reach, but that might not be the place you start. So again, it's pretty prosaic advice. It's like pick your battles, pick where you're going to engage them. Um, and, and one of the great things about archaeology is that there are lots of different kinds of publication and presentation venues. Um, maybe not as many as you would ultimately like, but, um, but it's possible to do different kinds of things in different contexts. Yeah, because some of these battles were fought 25, 30 years ago by uh, post-processual critics of processualism. That's, it's out broadly out of that ferment that you get rats and tag. And, uh, WAC was a different form, formation process, um, international and, and political. But what that means is that there, the legacy of those earlier um, debates and controversies give you, give you space to do some of this kind of work. My name is Taylor Carr Howard. I'm a first-year archaeology master's student here, um, and my interests are Roman provincial art and archaeology and archaeological photographs. Um, and Professor Wiley, I was wondering, you, in both your article and in your talk yesterday, you mentioned the complete rejection of community-based archaeology from people both in the fields of philosophy and archaeology. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to why you think that there has been such a backlash against that as a concept within the fields? Well, I, I guess I should say I was citing a few high-profile figures who have been very critical. And it's not that they're isolated or, or unique. I mean, there are, there are certainly others whose reservations and concerns they represent. And I was citing ones who make those reservations really explicit, things that others might not say explicitly. Um, so I don't want to paint a picture of like the whole, you know, the, the whole dominant, you know, the whole field of archaeologists and philosophers interested in theories of knowledge rising up in horror, you know. But I think um, th there's, I think there are reservations uh, about collaborative practice for the reasons I outlined that it's it's seen as opening the door to um, to bias and distortion to the play, the free play of interests, down a slippery slope, you get alternate facts and you get, you know, sort of anything goes relativism and radical social constructionism. So certainly uh, Bogosian, the philosopher I was citing, Fear of Knowledge, um, he means to be holding the line against any uh, weakening or critique of the idea that there are norms of justification uh, that constitute what it is for knowledge to be knowledge. And those are facts that we can be right about or wrong about. And he thinks that um, Western, broadly Western scientific traditions of inquiry uh, are operating on practical norms that approximate those, those facts. Um, and that, just, you know, so he's presuming we're on the right track. We know what these facts are and anything that challenges them you know, has to be uh, held at bay. And I think you get similar kinds of arguments in some of, from some of the archaeological critiques without quite so much, you know, uh, heavy weather about <laughs> what these facts of, of you know, that just would invoke ideals of objectivity. And the presumption is that objectivity as a 
positive, you know, like a, a valorizing term for what we're going to count as good knowledge um, that and good knowers, um, that it's to be equated with um, broadly uh, a value, an ideal of value freedom. And yeah, so in other contexts than what you've read, I make the point, draw, drawing on a number of other philosophers who've done some of this work, that we, the, the concept of objectivity, we use it in very diverse ways. We predicate objectivity of things in the world, the real, really real, of uh, knowers, those who we think on a, on a value-free ideal uh, are dispassionate, are impartial, they're not, you know, they don't have an axe to grind, they're going to see clearly in an unbiased way really what the facts are and draw inferences in a purely rational mode. And that could be individuals or collectives, right? Um, and we also use the term to characterize, we, we attribute objectivity to knowledge we consider to be authoritative. Um, and there's a lot of slippage between those usages. So uh, sometimes it's assumed, typically it's assumed, that if, if it's uh, in some way obvious that a knower or a, a, a knowledge-producing community has a political stance or a moral commitment or an ideological commitment, necessarily they are then non-neutral. They're no longer neutral or impartial. And anything they uh, put forward as a knowledge claim is, uh, in a sense, tarred with the same brush, presumed also to be biased and, and untrustworthy. Uh, so that's the kind of critique you see operating when feminist archaeologists, those self-identified as feminists, and even just women archaeologists, for example, uh, their, your situatedness is marked by that characterization. And the presumption is that anything you claim from that situated position has to be biased and distorted and untrustworthy. And in fact, I would want to argue, I've argued in other contexts, you really want to break that, that inference, that move, because oftentimes it's feminists, it's critical race scholars, it's decolonizing advocates for decolonizing archaeology and research in general, it's they who are, are um, because of their commitments, in a position to say, wait a minute, why are we making these assumptions? Why are you ignoring these kinds of evidence? Why are you not considering this range of possible ways of understanding the archaeological record, these hypotheses about the past? Um, and that, and, and in fact, there, I would say sometimes those who are motivated knowers as opposed to impartial and seen to be neutral, which is itself a problematic point, right, um, are going to be producing better knowledge claims, knowledge claims we would want to characterize under the rubric of, a, of a objectivity as maximizing epistemic virtues of various kinds, more empirically adequate, more explanatorily powerful, more reliable in application, uh, precisely because of their political commitments, right? Now, it can cut the other way, of course. You know, you, you need to be, I'm not suggesting that, you know, have political commitments, therefore should be trusted on all things epistemic. But, but the idea that having political commitments, uh, situated knowledge perspective standpoint, disqualifies automatically the knowledge claims made, uh, I think is really pernicious. And I think that, but that's the worry. If you identify objectivity with some kind of highly abstract ideal, like freedom from value, view from nowhere, um, then any critic or any um, argument for collaborative practice which suggests that 
those who have clearly situated interests, like non-archaeologists, presuming archaeologists have no interests, right? <laughs> that somehow that's automatically going to be compromising, automatically contaminating the knowledge. I think that's the background. In philosophical terms, those, that's the background set of assumptions that animates these very broad, hand-waving kind of arguments about why collaborative practice in general is a non-starter and problematic, should be taken to be problematic. And it is striking to me that critics like Bogosian and some of the archaeologists I cited uh, don't actually dig into the details of collaborative practice and say, here's where it went wrong, here's the problem, here's what's missed, here's what's compromised. It's, it's an invocation of these broad philosophical arguments. It's an ideological position, I would say, but they presume it to be neutral and impartial and unmarked because their social identities typically assimilate to you know, the social indicators of, of authority. <laughs> their senior, largely white, middle-class, upper-class, you know, well-positioned academics. Um, so their, their situatedness is rendered invisible or is pre they're presumed by them to be invisible, and nobody's scrutinizing that. So I think that's one way of understanding the backlash or the critiques, where the critiques come from. But there is a whole number of other layers of, of account to be given that's more empirical, sociological, political. Like, why is this so particularly threatening to people in positions who have presumed themselves to be no neutral and be the defenders of, of integrity and, and authority for science, right? Why, why at this juncture, it's not a unique juncture, but why, why are they mobilizing? Why are they investing their time in writing a book, a not terribly good book in Bogosian's case, to take down these vaguely referenced, um, you know, sources of contamination? I think that, so that's a story I'm not as well equipped to fill in, but I imagine you could fill in. Why, why are they feeling so nervous? What's their anxiety? <laughs> Yeah. So it's Dana again. Um, so I consider myself to be a feminist archaeologist, both in terms of the actual research that I do in Andean South America and in the Mississippian world on household archaeology and identity politics through foodways, but also through my work on gender equity issues and academic representation and publication. So thinking about your work on feminist standpoint theory, how do you see some of these issues of intersectionality fitting in with ideas about partnerships. So from my experience working with community partners in Peru, for example, which is of course quite different from working with First Nations or Native communities in North America, there are very few women from stakeholder communities who end up becoming involved, even if it is a collaborative endeavor. So are there ways that we can further engage with that issue of gender equity or other intersectional, intersectional factors that we should think about when we're develop, developing collaborative partnerships in the broader indigenous science project? That's, yeah, that's a, this is a really interesting and hard question because you want to respect the norms of the communities you're working with, and they may be norms that you find really problematic. Now, I have to say, in the meetings that I've been in on with uh, First Nations communities in the Northwest, so that's not many of them, but women have been very present. <laughs> women as elders uh, have a very strong voice. Um, so that the gender dimension, so far as I've seen, is not actually an issue. <laughs> Um, and that, so that's going to vary by community. 
in lots of ways. Um, and I don't know enough about Andean context, although I do remember a paper by Joan Jarrow years ago in which she made the point that you, you know, about uh, representation of women in different contexts and archaeology in the world. And as I remember the argument, um, a class and status trumped gender in, in, in Peruvian archaeology. So that there were a number of senior women active archaeologists, um, and, and, and gender didn't seem to be the barrier. So what you're describing is who at a community level who's not gone to you know, hasn't had the opportunity of a, of a robust or elite education and doesn't have a kind of class status that trumps gender, how do you engage in those contexts? Um, now, that, this is related to a question that I've gotten a couple of times recently. Uh, what do you actually do when you confront a situation where you see um, what you consider to be injustice or harm being done? that's taken to be norm normative within the community you're working with. And of course, ethnographers deal with these issues all the time. Um, I don't know the full breadth of wisdom that they've developed on these issues, but it seems to me one way to engage is, uh, this comes from uh, work, in, I'm thinking philosophically in critical theory, Raymond Geis has a little book called The Idea of Critical Theory from some decades ago, and there's very, he's not the only one, but there's very nice account there of, like, if you, uh, of a way in which you, you can uh, move back and forth between elements of your, your commitments and what your reasons are for seeing the disappearing of women, the marginalization of women as problematic, and let's say what the values and interests and norms are within the context where that you're engaging. Um, and the suggestion is rather than kind of, you know, come in with like, well, clearly my values trump yours and I know what's right. <laughs> we know how well that goes. <laughs> um, uh, see if there aren't points of engagement or ways of engaging where some of their values would suggest that women should be at the table, or should be respected for their uh, wisdom and expertise in particular areas. So this is very, again, very general kind of uh, uh, response. But um, yeah, I think you also have to be prepared to critically scrutinize what counts as a feminist stance from our perspective, which may look very different. I mean, so women may actually have a lot of power within households or in, in contexts that you mostly don't have access to. Um, and they don't want that power to be disrupted by someone coming in and saying, you now have to be in like the town hall and talking with the boys. They may actually be able to get more done you know, from, the, from the positions they do occupy. There may be kinds of help or kinds of engagement they would welcome. I remember Sonia Atle describing work she did, the community archaeology work that she was doing at Chapal, where she figured out she was able as a woman to meet with women, and I gather uh, men from the project probably couldn't have had those sit-down within the home kind of conversations. And what she learned, as I remember, was that um, they were really interested in knowing more about the archaeology and the history of the archaeology, even though Chatal had been excavated for decades, and they really didn't have a lot of on-the-ground understanding of what was going on, why archaeologists were doing this, and despite mostly men being employed through that period. 
Um, and what it turned out was they, they asked for their children that there should be like a, like a graphic novel representation, like a picture book rep cartoon representation or a character, you know, so that the children could learn. And I think what she came away with was that there were plenty of people in the community who, who didn't read easily. And so this was for the children, but it was going to make a difference for everyone. So finding those points of connection, I think, that's, that's the crucial way to uh, address those issues. Um, but I have been surprised in a number of contexts to how um, profoundly I, my own sense of what it is to live in the world and be active as a feminist changes uh, when I see the world from different perspectives, or I begin to see it the way others see it. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. This is um, Jessica again. Um, or just I love that answer a lot, and. Uh, Sonia Adelaide actually participated in, in one of these podcasts, and it was amazing oh, to yeah. hear um, her. Did she mention uh, this yeah. practice? Oh, well, then I there'll think, be a better account in her well, podcast. Well, no, I think actually yeah. it was actually in her lecture in the Q&A that this sort of came out, how mm -hmm. she incorporated her dissertation work at Chetelhoek with the, the local community, mm -hmm. uh, more so than the podcast itself. But anyways, making She's done a bunch here. of more recent um, yeah. graphic novel formats on repatriation, they're really powerful, they're open access, they're gorgeous. And I think that's a medium that, you know, uh, the question about um, publication, that's a medium, consider what medium will reach which audiences. And there's no sense, as I look at what she's been producing, of dumbing down, right? You can get a lot of information, rich, complex, if you have a good illustrator. Either you are or you can work with one, yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I think we've all sort of maybe touched on similar issues being early career or graduate students in the academy. And I'll just ask one more question having to do with the kind of configuration of the disciplinary authorities that be and, <laughs> that you and how we <laughs> navigate them and really how you, as a philosopher of science, open up what counts as empirical adequacy um, in your in your writing and your projects, but I'm wondering if you can, what sort of advice you would offer us to navigate um, the kind of institutionalized, um, I guess, metrics for evaluating what counts today um, as empirical adequacy and then sort of like what counts as a, a career trajectory, um, especially as um, scholars in the humanities and the social sciences. Mm -hmm. sort of. Well, yeah, I hate to keep saying this, but it really depends a lot on the specific context in which you're working. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, uh, as a philosopher, thinking about my own career path, it's really eccentric. Um, you know, I, the program that I did my graduate work in that I referred to earlier didn't exist by the time I graduated from it. It wasn't exactly a calling card for getting you know, interviews for jobs. Um, and in my case, what really mattered was uh, the fact that being interdisciplinary, that was a, a liability for getting a straight-up philosophy job, but it was an advantage for at least some postdoc competitions where there'd be people from different fields represented. Um, and I don't know that, you know, that there's fierce competition for postdocs, so that's, you know, philosophy, it was more unusual in the 80s for a philosopher to get a postdoc. So that was a, a, a non-standard route that I pursued that gave me the space 
to publish um, a, a number of different kinds of work. I mean, what in early job interviews, uh, I would be asked, so are you really a philosopher? You know, are you going to be publishing philosophy? If we hire you, we need a philosopher who's going to be doing work that's recognized as philosophical. And here you've got these archaeology things on your CV. It was like, why, rather than see it as a liability, why not see it as an enrichment, right? But, but I, I didn't sort of strategically beef up the philosophy part. I mean, there were philosophy things I wanted to publish, but the postdocs, unstable, precarious as they are, gave me an opportunity to publish in several different areas and, and for the breadth of my work to be visible because I didn't have the kinds of standard, like early career, your CV isn't going to show in concrete terms exactly all the things that you expect to be doing, most likely will do. Um, so for me, and in this kind of precarious situation and unusual profile, I needed to have more actual proof of the pudding, as it were, that I will be publishing, you know, I, I do philosophical work, um, but I, I'm never going to give up the archaeological connections. So um, the point of that is not that that in particular is going to be useful career advice since you're more likely to be looking at postdocs anyway and, and they're competitive and so on and so forth. But think about what the niches are where you can flourish, I would say, um, where your work will be appreciated. There are certainly venues in philosophy. I've occasionally been invited in to give a talk and do not recorded podcasts like this, but discussion sessions in philosophical context where it's perfectly clear that the reason I was invited was because some senior old dog was gunning for me and I was going to be exhibit A of how not to do philosophy, right? <laughs> and, it, you know, it's actually, you can see these guys coming a mile away. It's not too hard. I mean, and it, I, I'm not, you know, I had a job. I was like... <laughs> But um, those are contexts where I would never recommend a grad student or postdoc go. And I'm quite upfront about it. You know, I, I name names, name places. Just don't bother. Like, if this is the kind of work you're doing, um, you know, look at Michigan State, where Kyle and Christy Dotson and Kevin Elliott and Heather Douglas, all doing applied philosophy of various kinds at a very high level of sophistication, philosophically and in terms of policy and engagement. Go there if you're a philosopher. Don't go to, you know, fill-in-the-blank IV that is devoted to inward-turned analytic philosophy. So you'll know better than me and, and the people you're working with will know better, certainly than I do, where those niches are. I would be very strategic about figuring out where there's a good fit, even under circumstances where you don't always have all the choices you'd like. So that's, yeah. Um, and then standard political organizing advice, um, which you're clearly already doing, uh, you're not going to make change in the institutional uh, setups that you confront, and you're not going to survive them alone. So, you know, build your networks, and not in the strategic networking, hand out your business card sense, but spaces where you can, you have people who understand the context you're in and you well enough that you can talk through what might, you know, what, what's happening. Um, and these should be people who are prepared to, like, I'm thinking as a feminist in philosophy. Philosophy has between 20 and 23 or 4% women in, in North America. It's down there with computer science. Only unlike, you know, or, or physics, many areas of math, it's the worst in terms of 
the social sciences and humanities, um, most life sciences, even physical sciences, have better representations of women. So it's a field where there certainly are niches, pockets, areas. I don't. It's changing, but that I don't want to be in because there's just no common understanding of why one would be motivated to do the kind of work I'm doing. Um, but you know, when I'm in settings where that you know the sort of subtle, implicit bias, transaction. Of, of micro inequities, as they're sometimes called, right? Like, what in, inequity they like to say is like pregnancy, like you are, or you are. <laughs> no micro about it, right? <laughs> but it's sometimes hard to discern. Was this remark? Was this critique? Um, you know, it seems there's a way it could be understood as trivial, but it sort of fits a pattern of diminishing, marginalizing interaction. The individual in question may vehemently defend the fact that he or she uh, is absolutely committed to equity and support of all kinds, and yet their actual interaction patterns, driven by um, you know, automatic processing kind of systems, um, may not bear out those commitments. And so it's really good to have a pod of people, I'm thinking of orcas swimming together, that where you can you can check in and say, so Am I right in thinking that this was like really not acceptable, or is it? And and people who can say to you, well, in this case, I think your antenna are up and a little oversensitive. You might just walk away from this one and wait and see what happens next. Or who can say to you, damn, that is totally you know not acceptable. So you need that kind of allyship. I would say that's better than like networking language has been appropriated into this world, but I think you need that to navigate. And always be thinking about the big wide world that needs people with your kinds of skills and training and insight. It may be that you'll do your best work that's most satisfying, not in an academic context. And it's not, you know, it should, you should not be thinking about, you know, breaking out of academia as failing to you know, pursue a career. That's a scenario imagining thing. How could you translate your skills and your insights in ways that will make a difference in the world that doesn't look like a straight line academic path? In in the U.S., um, I you know, a huge number of archaeologists are employed by uh, tribal historic preservation offices, right? Or those are that's from an academic point of view non-standard, but you that may be exactly where you want to be. Um, anyway. Some thoughts. Thank you so much. Well, we're out of time, but thank you oh, no. so much, Dr. Wiley. Thank you to our podcast participants, to Jessica, to Liam, to Anna Paula, and to Taylor, and to all of you out there listening to Radio Science. Thank you for listening. <laughs>